This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Premier Kathleen Wynne is with us. Thank you very much, Premier, for joining us today. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. Uh, a few weeks ago, you used the term mistake when referring to your energy plan. What was the mistake? What did you mean by that? So what I meant was, um, Scott, we, uh, we've had to do a lot of rebuilding of the electricity system. Uh, when we came into office under the previous premier in 2003, um, there was a, an unreliable, dirty system. We were having brownouts, blackouts. There were smog days. We've done a lot of work. We've shut down all the coal-fired plants. We've rebuilt over 10,000 kilometers of line. Uh, we've jump-started a renewable industry. And so now we have a clean, renewable electricity grid. The the uh, oversight, the, the mistake that we made is that we, we didn't pay close enough attention to the burden that was being borne by Ontarians for the cost of those investments. And so for the last um, number of months, year or so, we've been looking at how we can take those costs, uh, many of those costs, off people's electricity bills. And, you know, we started by taking the debt retirement charge off people's bills. We put in place the Ontario Energy Support Program to help people on uh, low income to uh, to reduce their bills. And on January 1st, uh, 8% of people's bills will be removed because we're taking the provincial portion of the HST off. But what I what I also said is that we know there's more that we have to do, both for, uh, for businesses and for, um, for residents, and the Minister of Energy and I and uh, the system are looking at what more can we do, we do to, uh, to help people with that, that burden. Premier, why couldn't you see this coming? Was there not a cost analysis done or, or due diligence uh, on the effects that this would have on Ontario and businesses? Well, you'll remember, Scott, that there was an Ontario Clean Energy benefit in place, and so we did know that there was a cost associated with it. Um, and, and as that uh, as that clean energy benefit, which was designed to help people um, pay for their electricity costs because of the changes that we'd made, when that expired, that's when we put the energy support program in place for uh, people on low income. We recognized that, that we needed to take the debt retirement charge off people's bills. So we did, we did understand, Scott, that there was a problem. I think we didn't, we didn't quite get that um, things like the distribution charge, particularly for people in rural and northern areas, was... Was, um, was as much of a problem as, as it is. And, you know, I've heard from people across the province. I get it, um, and I know that there's more that we have to do. Uh, do we have a solution? When will we hear the solution uh, to this mistake over and above rebates? Doesn't this require a, a complete system overhaul of some sort? Well, I know you were talking about um, the proposal, for example, that the Ontario Chamber of Commerce had given us, mm-hmm. the, the notion of creating a capacity market system and doing our procurement of, uh, of electricity generation differently, and that is something that the uh, Minister of Energy has talked about. We're, you know, we're paying close attention to ideas like that, Scott, because I think you're absolutely right. This is not about um, necessarily uh, another one-off. This is about how do we look across the system and figure out the changes in in sort of the the way we do business um, that will uh, will give us lasting uh, resolution on this, but. 
even having said that, there may be more than one thing that we need to do. You know, it may be partly about procurement, but there may be other things that we need to do because there are particular groups of people regionally um, who are uh, who are carrying a disproportionate bur- version, um, burden, and so that's why we need to uh, we need to look at those particular areas and find those people who are uh, who are really suffering. Premier, how are Ontarians supposed to have confidence in your cap and trade plan when there were mistakes made with the energy plan? How do you feel confident? How do people feel confident that in a year or two you won't come out and say, "Well, there were mistakes made with that as well"? Well, I think that there's I think there's been a lot of learning over the last uh, few years as we've as we've made these major changes to the uh, to the electricity system. But Scott, you know, overall the changes that we have made have meant that our air is cleaner in Ontario. We are ahead of the curve in terms of the reduction of pollution, of, of greenhouse gas emissions in our air. And other jurisdictions are going to have to now work to catch up. If you look at what's happening in Alberta, there's a plan in Alberta now to shut down the coal plants. But they are, they're just at the beginning of that process. We've completed that. And so in order to be globally competitive, we are actually ahead of the game. So I... You know, I, I completely accept and take responsibility for the, um, the electricity prices, and I know that there's more that we have to do. But I also take responsibility, and we, we all in Ontario can take pride in the fact that we've got cleaner air than so many other jurisdictions, even jurisdictions that surround us in the United States. We've got, uh, we've got a jump on a renewable industry that is, is now an export industry to other jurisdictions, exporting technology that has been developed. So so there, there's a success part of this story as well, Scott, that we, uh, that we need not to miss. And the other reality is that Ontario is leading economic growth in this country, you know. Um, we are, uh, we're, we've got an unemployment rate that's below the national average. But where's the balance here, Premier? I mean, this is unsustainable for families and businesses as they look forward and make plans into the future. Where's the balance here? Well, but, but that's exactly why I've said that there's more we need to do on electricity prices. But look, Scott, the other thing that, you know, the other things that we are doing um, are helping people in other ways, because the story isn't, it's not solely about electricity. That's not the only expense that people have. People who have kids who are going into post-secondary and are worried about paying tuition are, you know, living on lower incomes. In, in September 2017, those kids are going to have access to free or better than free tuition. Um, people who are looking for childcare for their, their baby you know, from zero to four years old, we're going to be building more childcare spaces with subsidy attached so that they will have access to, uh, to childcare. Those are the other kinds of expenses that people have in their lives. And, and so you have, we have to look across the board at all of the things that we're doing um, in order to help people. We're building an LRT in Hamilton, Scott, that uh, couldn't be built if we hadn't made a decision to make investments in infrastructure. And that will help people to get around in their day in their daily lives. Are you worried that that's kind of all been overshadowed because of the crippling electricity rates? I mean, that's all anyone's talking about, Premier. Well, it's it's certainly it's certainly what I'm uh, what I'm being asked about, and I understand that it's uh, you know it's something that is very very top of mind for people. I, I get that. Uh, at the same time, I also know that people have a lot of things going on in their lives. Electricity prices are one of them. We know that we've got to do better on that. But I you know I. I 
have to also focus on the education of kids in this province. I have to focus on making sure that health care is sustainable. You know, we're having a very important conversation with the federal government right now who have put on the table uh, a proposal that would actually see health care costs reduced, health care um, investments reduced over the next 10 years. And we can't accept that. We need to make investments in our hospitals, in home care, in mental health. And so that is, you know, that's also something that's top of mind for people. So we have to do all of those things at once, Scott. And I think, I think Ontarians understand that. One last question. I know you have to go. You're on a tight schedule. Uh, your future. Some have commented that you may step down before the next election. Is that a, is that a possibility? No, I'm, I ran on a plan in 2014, uh, Scott, to make the investments, to grow the economy, to grow an inclusive economy. That's what we're doing. We're seeing some success at that. Obviously, there is more to do, and I will be, uh, I'll be running in 2018. Premier, thank you so much for the time. Greatly appreciate it, and have yourself a great holiday. Thanks, Scott. Have a great holiday. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Sandra's on the line. Sandra, what are your thoughts? Great show. Um, Ms. Wynn was on Steve Paikin about a year ago or whatever on TVO's The Agenda. And in the space of 30 minutes, she 41 times said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry about the gas plant. Can you explain to me, could anyone explain to me why it is, and I'm going to use a widget as my metaphor, why are we building a widget for a dollar a piece, selling it to Ohio for 50 cents, and then buying that very same widget back for a buck 50. I don't get it, and she's never been able to, to answer that question. And I'm talking about hydroelectricity. The other thing is that she goes on about how she's going to focus on, she's got to focus on this. You know what? No. When you're a premier, you're a leader. So what you do is you get Bob here, you're going to focus on my hydro, on my electricity file. Jim, you're going to focus on the health file. Susan, you're going to focus on the welfare file. That's what they focus on, and she focuses on leading and, and, and leading. Oh, oh, man, between her and Canada Post, I hope I make it through to the new year. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Sandy. Much appreciated. Phone lines open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Love to hear from you. Wayne, what are your thoughts? What did you think of what the Premier had to say? Well, I think she's prepared for an election, and uh, my wife even says it. She's going to get in again, Scott. Everybody else seems to be self-destructing, and we're all going to be in trouble. <laughs> so you don't have confidence that uh, we won't change our minds this time out? Well, she's already said. I mean, we've sort of done that. We've sort of done that two or three times already. Yes, true. But she's already said, uh, "I'm sorry" to her voter base, and if they've accepted her and she can do it again, they're going to get in. That's how they got in last time. And so far, the opposition parties—they seem to be self-destructing. Yeah, that's a good point. Until there's that, you can see it coming. It's it's going to happen. Hey, you know, everybody said Donald Trump wasn't going to get in. But see, that's another point. And boy, if I had time, I would have asked her about that. I mean, you know, the whole thing with Donald Trump. I mean, at first it was everybody branded him a racist, and, and you know, I'm certainly not going to deny that and who he appealed to. But then there's also a lot in there, a lot of that faction that that voted just simply because they didn't like the status quo. And Kathleen Wynne acknowledged that after Trump was elected. 
That is correct. And yeah. but nevertheless, Donald Trump may turn out to be one of their best presidents at this rate. They've already had the movie actor, and uh, well, they've done through. They've gone through a couple of families about as much as they can. It's probably it's probably a good idea to move on. Although they've just moved to another family, so we'll see where that goes. <laughs> Anyways, I love your show. I listen to it every day. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Oh, Take care, Lane. Than- Thank you. Uh, let's go to Al here. Al, what are your thoughts on what the premier had to say? What do I have to think? Well, I'll tell you one thing. She keeps talking about they've got things in place to help people. Trouble is, everyone's struggling. So what she's doing is asking the middle class, as they say, who is struggling, and she never mentioned that. She always mentions the low earners. We have to already struggling. We have to help pay for the low earners. And that doesn't seem right to me because everyone is struggling. Everyone, not just the, the poor. Yeah, that's so we're a- getting hit again because she wants us to pay to help them. She can find the money, but it'll come out of us, not her revenues. That's a very good point. Thanks for the call, Al. Uh, Very good point. I mean, we hear the stories about the 1,400 families that were disconnected and then reconnected. But again, uh, it's it's beyond that. It's businesses. It's people who, you know, are writing me and telling me they're not going to put Christmas lights up this year because they'd rather spend the money on presents for their kids. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Love to hear what your response was. What did you think of the answers? Again, asked to the same basic three or four uh, electricity questions that we've been hammering away on at this show, on this show for, for months. And, the, and, and certainly after she made the point about the mistake, uh, I, I asked her what the mistake was. She said that they didn't pay close enough attention to how the burden was going to be placed on Ontarians, especially in rural areas. Uh, and, and then I asked why she didn't see that coming. And they said that they did see that coming uh, and, and thought that they had handled it, I guess, with eliminating the distribution charge, uh, this sort of thing. What she didn't really answer was what the solution was to the problem at all and, and even made reference to an interview that we had with uh, uh, the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and, and a, uh, a report they submitted along with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce uh, talking about a, a capacity-type system, which I'm not going to, you know, begin to decode for you now because I certainly don't know um, which again just astounded me that it's 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 the Ontario Chamber of Commerce that's sending the government plans on how to fix the system uh, isn't that isn't that their job and then when I asked in regard to cap and trade how we're supposed to have confidence for that and that's basically the four questions I asked uh, very scripted I mean this is these are the questions I want the answers to and um, and as far as cap and trade, she said, I guess that, you know, that we know they've learned a lot and that there's a lot more. Uh, this is a lot deeper scenario. A lot of people are already doing it. So we know a lot more about cap and trade than we do regarding, uh, I guess, the green energy plan. I'm not sure if that if that makes you feel more comfortable or less or, or you feel good about what's going to happen after January uh, first, call me 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. I'd love to hear what your thoughts were on the interview with Premier Wynn. Nikki is on the line with us now. Nikki, what are your thoughts? Hi, Scott. I listen to your show every day. Thanks for having me on. Um, well, thanks for listening. We appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I just caught the tail end of your chat with Kathleen Wynn there, and I just, I'm laughing because, you know, you're talking about all the electricity costs and everything, and then she starts to go on to say, well, that's one issue, but well, what about health care? I have to deal with that. And yeah. she hasn't really 
given a hoot about that over the last year. And I just think it's funny that, you know, the federal government put that deal on the table. They didn't accept it, so the the government, you know, the feds took it off the table. And I just thought it was funny because that's exactly what Kathleen Wynne and Eric Hoskins have been doing to the Ontario, you know, doctors for the last year, putting stuff on the table. Oh, the doctors don't like it, so they take it off and, and you know, that's... You don't like it, so that's it. Do you believe she didn't see this coming? I mean, you know, I find it hard to believe because, I mean, I had professors on from the University of Guelph, from Carleton, wherever, and, and, I mean, they said there's no end in this. I mean, it just, are you surprised she didn't see that coming? No, no, she absolutely did, and she didn't care. And, um, you know, if she gets in during the next election, I don't know what I'm going to do. It'll probably be moving to a different province. (laughs) Nikki, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. uh, All right. Thank you very much for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, Larry's on the line. Larry, what are your thoughts on what the Premier had to say? Hey, Scott. I thought it was pretty good. She said your name 13 times in eight minutes, so that was And you know what else she said that's very cool? She goes, you're right, which automatically kind of diffuses you. <laughs> hey, did you have to divulge your four questions before the interview? No, I didn't at all. No, none of that at all. No, it was, and, and none of it's edited. It's all, you know, but I, I sort of knew going in exactly what I was going to ask because it's the same thing I've been barking about for the last six well, months. No, I, so. just wondered, I, I just wondered no. if she knew what you were going to ask. No, um, no. Nor, and normally we don't, and nor, like, I can't think of a time where I've ever done that. Normally everybody's well, pretty good that way. Good for you. Um, I guess two of the things that stressed me. Um, you basically said, did you not see this coming? And she said, yes, um, meaning that, you know, we're going to do it anyway, regardless of what's going to happen. Mm. But we know what's going to happen, but too bad. Um, the other thing, when she said about, uh, when she started talking about kids' education, and uh, I guess what struck a chord with me was I know a lot of uh, folks that are on pensions and retired and single incomes and whatnot, and you know what? Having kids' tuition covered next September really doesn't do them any good through the winter months with their hydro bill. And, again, uh, understanding that they are important issues, but deal with the main one. I mean, the other stuff, like that other girl said, hey, you got people that can do this that, that, that are responsible to focus on. You need to focus on the people that can't pay their hydro bills, that are sitting in the freaking dark and in the cold, and, you know, nothing else really matters beyond that. Well, there just didn't seem to be, and I questioned you about balance. It just doesn't seem to be any balance. I mean, it was, we're going to do this come hell or high water, and we don't care who we take out in the meantime. And again, she's focusing a lot on uh, those that are operating near the margins, like the 1,400 families that were reconnected. But this is affecting everybody. I mean, that's why the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, along with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, submitted a brief on how they think she should be running the electricity system. I mean, that's not what their job is. They don't have the time or energy for that sort of project. No, absolutely not. And what are these? What are these people that are supposed to be doing exactly doing with that? But the thing that the thing, one thing I wish you had asked her was when she recognized like the fourteen hundred people. How come it wasn't recognized before Global bounced that interview? Yeah. Why weren't they? Why weren't they looking at it then? If they, if you know, all of a sudden that's a major concern, and they know, they know. Well, they didn't know. They got told. That's why they know. And that's the part that scares me the most. And as far as her looking at the next election, I tell you what, people, wake up. I mean, come on. And, you know, that's what scares me about cap-and-trade is, like, if there's mistakes in cap-and-trade or mistakes with the energy program, then how do we know she's not going to come back a year from now? Oh, you know what? We goofed that one, too. Oh, yeah, she'll be up there crying again, and, you know, we're all supposed to hand her a Kleenex and (laughs) sing Kumbaya. Like, holy cow. We got to wake up, people. All right, thanks for the call, Larry. Much appreciated. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. That opens up another line. Mike, what are your thoughts on what the Premier had to say? Mike? Mike? Yep, go ahead. 
oh, sorry, no, I was just curious. On your interview and every other interview she makes, when she's helping people, all she does is mention taking that three or four lousy dollars off the bill, which they took off, get retirement charge. She never comes right back and in the same breath mentions the cap-and-trade coming on, which will more than overrule that. And I'm just going to tell you, they'll spend, till they get back to a legislator, legislator in February, they will find the cheapest way they can to give us some money off the hydro bill that won't cost them a cent. They will spend all that time to be generous, but that won't cost them hardly anything, and they'll somehow will pay for it. Yeah, well, that's so, the, that's a sad thing, as one other caller alluded to, is uh, all that relief has got to come from somewhere. Yeah. And the only other thing, I want to jump in one more, Scott. I heard her on the radio today saying she's running again. People are happy with her policies, or her policies. Well, I'll tell you, if I had 12% approval rate, that should tell her right away that she's a full of baloney, and people do not like her policies. But she's arrogant, and she will not concede anything. And uh, I'm also worried she'll get in again. <laughs> but anyway, that's all I have to say, Scott. All right, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Phone lines are open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. You know, the interesting thing, and I've never had this really happen before, but we, we knew we were going to get the interview uh, and that the interview was going to happen this morning. And uh, so we talked about that yesterday, and I started getting emails from people, you know, asking me to ask these questions. And, you know, I can't think of another time where, you know, you said you were going, unless you physically ask people to say, hey, do you got a question? I should ask the premier or whatever. Um, but I can't think of a lot, another time where we said we were going to interview somebody. And as a result of that, people started emailing me. Uh, Rick says, I fu- I'm fully expecting to sit back and literally hear your special guest squirm as she stumbles through her prepared notes and prepared responses. The ruffling of paper will be silenced as the beads of sweat run freely from, freely from her brow to dampen them. Don't let us down, Scott. This is all I want for Christmas. I mean, seriously, it's bizarre. You know, here's another one. Always enjoy your take on things when I'm listening in the car. This morning I was wondering what happened. Uh, Oh, that's on something different. Uh, Another one, uh, moving on and saying, uh, ask her about what the long-term plan is. How do we move beyond these rebates and what happens after January? I mean, these are all all questions that that, that motivated people to, to write me ahead of time and 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 make sure that i that i ask the questions that they want to hear the answers to you know and, and even knowing that i guess they're going to be uh they're going to be prepared answers anyway uh feel free phone lines open 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell if there's something that uh you want to say in regard to the interview lots of stuff coming in on facebook uh and twitter kathy says well mr thompson i for one will not be listening if she told me the sky was blue i wouldn't believe her i wouldn't have to go check it first i have zero trust in her and she would be doing the province a great service if she resigned just one of the many comments. Bev is on the line. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. What are your thoughts on what the Premier had to say, Bev? Well, Scott, I'm going to tell you something. She told you that it's going to be exactly the same, big spending, 
and uh, you're going to live with it. That's what it is. And she reminded you by saying that she's going to put a billion dollars into Hamilton. But I want to send a message to everybody in Hamilton is this. They built the LRT. Hamilton's not exempt for the cost of the LRT. Their taxes are going to go up to in Hamilton just like everybody else's in the whole province. More big spending, Scott. That's all it is. All right. Thanks for the call, Bev. Much appreciated. 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Here's what the Premier, oh, by the way, phone lines are open. Here's what the Premier uh, had to say when I asked her in regard to the mistake and what it was. What was the mistake? What did you mean by that? So what I meant was, um, Scott, we, uh, we've had to do a lot of rebuilding of the electricity system. Uh, when we came into office under the previous Premier in 2003, um, there was a, an unreliable, dirty system. We were having brownouts, blackouts. There were smog days. We've done a lot of work. We've shut down all the coal-fired plants. We've rebuilt over 10,000 kilometers of line. Uh, we've jump-started a renewable industry. And so now we have a clean, renewable electricity grid. The the uh, oversight, the, the mistake that we made is that we, we didn't pay close enough attention to the burden that was being borne by Ontarians for the cost of those investments. And so for the last um, number of months, year or so, we've been looking at how we can take those costs, uh, many of those costs, off people's electricity bills. And, you know, we started by taking the debt retirement charge off people's bills. We put in place the Ontario Energy Support Program to help people on uh, low income to uh, to reduce their bills. And on January 1st, uh, 8% of people's bills will be removed because we're taking the provincial portion of the HST off. But what I what I also said is that we know there's more that we have to do, both for, uh, for businesses and for for, um, for residents and the Minister of Energy and I and uh, the system are looking at what more can we do, we do to uh, to help people with that that burden. I don't know. I don't. I you know I I I appreciate the explanation, but I just don't think that cuts it. I mean, I really don't. Um, because again, you you know, I've talked to no shortage of professors that saw this coming. Uh, uh, Several kilometers away. They could see the train wreck coming. They could see that, you know, the prices were just going to continue to go up and go. I mean, it was all quite predictable, which is, I think, why she made the comment way back when that we were bad actors, because we're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk. But again, as I mentioned, where's the balance? Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Doug's on the line. Doug, what are your thoughts of what the Premier had to say? Hi, Scott. G- Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. Thanks for calling, Doug. Um, I just wondered why she never mentioned uh, $37 billion wasted on green energy, for one thing, or the billion-dollar gas plant scandals. Yeah. Yeah, it's awful. I know, I know. I wish I had another eight minutes, man. I had a a list of questions as long as my leg. (laughs) I don't know that one bit. And, like, you know, they sell hydro to the U.S. for next to nothing. And, no, well, well, we're trying to do our best. You know, it's just, it's frustrating. I'm a lower-income person, and it's just, you know, there's no answers. 
Yeah, I just, I, I just, you know, to be honest, Tom, I just don't think she, or uh, I Doug. just don't think, she, sorry, Doug, I just don't think That's she okay. saw it coming. I just really don't. Uh, I think that uh, she, she ignored what the expert said in regard to uh, the increases, and you know, many said who I talked to that. You know, the whole green movement was so strong and, you know, they were they were being so uh, the activism so strong that come hell or high water, they were going to they were going to do this. And as the auditor general said, they overspent by thirty seven billion dollars. But it seems as if it's all or nothing, like either you're with her or you're some sort of fossil fuel burning pig. And I mean, that wasn't my question. My point to her was, where's the balance in all of this? We're all for saving the environment. But man, uh, clearly you've nipped us a little too close to the bone in the in your attempt to do this yeah i agree with you 100 percent there scott and i also i sent you uh i believe it was an email a long time ago that you played on your station and uh, just remember green is the color of money <laughs> thanks for the call doug much appreciated take care not a problem merry christmas merry, to you. merry christmas to you too 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell now we'll go to tom tom what are your thoughts on what the premier had to say well everyone has expressed their feelings which are mine but i just want to jump in and say i would like one program for you to run one day and that would be to ask anybody that voted a liberal t- last time why they would vote liberal again i uh, just want to hear their answers that's all i have to say thank you wow that's interesting why would you vote liberal again that's the question you want asked yes all right uh we'll ask that if you can uh, maybe answer uh, tom's asked a question right here so uh, why not answer it if you can? 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Why would you vote Liberal again? Tom, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Uh, why would you vote Liberal again? We won't even ask you why you did the last time. We'll just ask if your plan is to the fu- for the future. Maybe you're a person out there that did vote Liberal and are planning on changing it next time out. I mean, most Canadians don't continually vote for the same political party, despite what some of you, you know, some may think. Most aren't card-carrying members of any political party. Most uh, Canadians are, 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 you know, sit in the center somewhere and, and bring the country left to right as they see fit. Same with the provinces. Uh, anyway, uh, we asked the premier in regard to cap and trade uh, with, you know, the mistakes that were made with the energy system and, and, and everything that we're experiencing now. How do we feel confident moving forward with cap and trade that a year or so from now we weren't going to get at the same thing all over again? Premier, how are Ontarians supposed to have confidence in your cap and trade plan when there were mistakes made with the energy plan? How do you feel confident? How do people feel confident that in a year or two you won't come out and say, "Well, there were mistakes made with that as well"? Well, I think that there's, I think there's been a lot of learning over the last uh, few years as we've as we've made these major changes to the uh, to the electricity system. But Scott, you know, overall, the changes that we have made have meant that. Our air is cleaner in Ontario. We are ahead of the curve in terms of the reduction of pollution, of of greenhouse gas emissions in our air. And other jurisdictions are going to have to now work to catch up. If you look at what's happening in Alberta, there's a plan in Alberta now to shut down the coal plants. But they're just at the beginning of that process. We've completed that. And so in order to be globally competitive, we are actually ahead of the game. So I... 
you know, I, I completely accept and take responsibility for the, um, the electricity prices, and I know that there's more that we have to do. But I also take responsibility, and we, we all in Ontario can take pride in the fact that we've got cleaner air than so many other jurisdictions, even jurisdictions that surround us in the United States. We've got, uh, we've got a jump on a renewable industry that is, is now an export industry to other jurisdictions, exporting technology that has been developed. So there ha- there's a success part of this story as well, Scott, that we, uh, that we need not to miss. And the other reality is that Ontario is leading economic growth in this country. All right. Uh, you know, I don't know if I still enjoy being the guinea pig here. Like everybody else is learning from the mistakes that we've made. You know, that's what, you know... Uh... Why can't we be? Why can't we sit back with uh, another summer of smog days? So then maybe the next year we can do all this right, without overspending by thirty-seven billion dollars, which could go to healthcare. You know, it, it just—I uh, just don't think they have a plan, and I don't think this is the first example of them not having a plan or having anything that's that's been thought out. That's, that, that, I don't think there's a cost analysis here. There's no due diligence, as I've said a bazillion times. Uh, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Brian is on the line. Brian, what are your thoughts on what the Premier had to say? Hey, Scooter, you sounded like you had a cold when you did that interview. I know, I did it really early in the morning, man. <laughs> I'm like, not a morning man, eh? I know, no, it's tough. Hey, i got to ask him, I don't know, maybe I'm stupid. Um, with the burden that we've accepted by being leading edge relative to clean air and carbon emissions and all that kind of stuff like in the world i think canada what do we rank like one and a half percent yeah like why the hell do we got to be the leaders at the cost of our population when we're not the worst yeah, you know, and I think her reason for that is, and I'm, I'm going to try to speak for her here, I think the reasoning behind that, Brian, is that if we're a leader in this sort of thing, if we're a leader in this sort of technology, then we can somehow make money out of it. But at the end now, of the day, now, all of these industries are, yeah, exactly, these industries are all subsidized at this point. Like, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter a bit what we do relative to clean air and, and green energy. If all the other nations keep spewing out all the crap and it blows over here anyway, like, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not anti-green by any means. I just don't know. Why. We did not have to, you know, we did not have to be the leaders in this by any means. We technology could still be developed without implementation and cost. Again, Maybe you know we what? Should've, we should have gone that route and developed all these technologies and then sold them and then put them into our system. Again, you know, I've said this before, Brian, that I believe the Liberals use green and use uh, uh, Ontarians' uh, sensitivity towards being green. I mean, people want to save the planet for their kids. I mean, they don't want to wreck it. Um, oh, and not, I think I think what happened. I know, and I agree with you 100. percent And and I I think what they're trying to do though is that they underestimated how big a hit you were willing to take, and that's why she called us bad actors. She said, "Come on, you guys were like act- I'm putting words in her mouth. You guys were activists. You guys said you wanted all this shut out. You guys said you wanted this, and now you're turtling on me when you got to pay for it all." And 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 I think she as a party, and that's what they're saying. They underestimate. They underestimated how much you were willing to pay out of your pocket 
credit for her activism. And she didn't balance it between business and activism. And, and that's what's happened here. She's taking us so far to the left that she's forgotten about small business. She's forgotten about families in, in whether than the lower class, middle class, whatever they are. I mean, because it's well, affecting everyone. But she did say, you know, they've learned a lot over the past year or so. At your expense. Absolutely. But I mean, so like for me, that just says, you know, well, okay, we're going to shoot, we're going to shoot camp and trade out the window here. And then after a while, then we'll take a year or so and try and figure out what went wrong. Like, I mean, it's, I don't have confidence in that at all, Brian. I really don't, as I mentioned. I tell you what, in answer to that other guy's question, I like green and I think that's, I'm going to vote green. (laughs) Good point. They're out of business now when you think about it. Brian, thanks for the call. Much appreciated. We're out of time. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, we saw the uh, horrific footage, a truck driving into uh, the Christmas market in Berlin, killing 12 and injuring nearly 50 others. Very, very similar to the situation we saw in Nice uh, a few uh, months earlier. Uh, Of course, raising the question, uh, are we doing enough to protect these soft targets, even when it comes to things like barriers and such? And uh, where are we as we continue uh, this battle. Joining us now is David Hyde, security consultant, David Hyde and Associates, and he is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Very good, Scott. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, can you give us any sort of update on this, David? I understand that they're not even quite sure that the suspect they have in custody is the right person. Well, that's right, Scott. I mean, when this happened, very shortly after it happened, they raided um, a kind of an area, a commune, if you will, that has a lot of um, you know, uh, immigrants in that have been given asylum in some way, and they believe that the suspect may have returned there or been there. They did make an arrest, and I think that everyone assumed that this arrest was of the driver of that vehicle, but it now turns out that they're backtracking on that, saying that this, you know, there's no evidence to suggest that, and they are actually, you know, are, are looking for a manhunt now for the individual who was driving that, that truck. So it looks to me as though they may have nabbed someone they thought was involved or someone with peripheral knowledge, perhaps. But the actual perpetrator, Scott, it appears, is at large right now in, in, you know, in, in Europe. Here's a clip of what one witness had to say. As we were leaving, the large truck came through. It went just past me, past my girlfriend. I think it missed me by three metres, missed her by five. It came in through the entrance, hit the sides of the barriers and then carried on past us. Uh, David, you know, this sounds very eerily like what happened in Nice, and and we were talking about uh, uh, that after uh, the event went down, and and things like soft targets and and simple things like barricades. Do you think any of that was in place at this point? Well, probably not, Scott. I mean, these Christmas markets are really a hallmark in Germany. I mean, in fact, they've exported it. Now, there are a few places in the U.S., in the U.K., where they hold these kind of Christmas market gathering places. It's the kind of place where you go in the festive season after you finish work for a glass of eggnog or special kinds of drinks. There are German drinks that they serve there and German food. And it's really, it really is kind of an institution that they've now started to export, frankly. So it's, you know, there might be 120 of them or more across Germany. So some of them, Scott, are well protected. I mean, I've, I've been over there. I've seen, um, you know, cordons around some of the larger ones and some of them actually kind of almost trumpet that as being, you know, come to this secure kind of gathering area. Mm. But this particular one here, its hallmark was more, you know, we're open, you know, come one, come all. You know, we, you know, we just, we're, you know, we're not, we're not going to, you know, kind of fall prey to this um, uh, jail-like security apparatus. 
So they were quite an open uh, gathering here. And so that truck could essentially jump the curb, Scott, and it could mow down through a lot of stalls that were there. You saw just the, they just fold like nothing with mm-hmm. a truck that size. And, of course, a number of people were killed. So there's no such thing, Scott, as perfect security around gathering areas like this. There are just too many soft targets. And, there's t- and it would just be too restrictive on for financial reasons, Scott, on the movement of people to actually secure and batten down every gathering area and event. However, you know, the question I think here should be raised, you know, there was a heightened terror alert in Germany at the time. The State Department in the U.S. issued a travel warning to all U.S. citizens going to Europe to be wary of public gathering areas with Christmas themes. So they they had some intel that somebody might try something like this, Scott, and unfortunately it it did happen. Here's what the head of the German Federal Police had to say. According to the investigation right now, we have one suspect, but we're not entirely sure whether he's definitely the attacker. We also don't quite know whether there's only one suspect, and we haven't found the weapon. But we don't have a video yet where anybody says they did it, and so we cannot say any conclusive, give any conclusive statements about the background. We have not been able to confirm that the person we have is definitely the driver. Uh, no one has accepted responsibility for this yet, David. Do you, do you find that strange at this point, or do you think there's, they're still trying to get away? How do, you, how do you read that? Yeah, I mean, um, ISIS normally, if it's inspired by them or directly they're involved, they normally claim pretty quickly. Al-Qaeda often does too. There are a few exceptions, Scott, but in Europe... I would have expected probably by now a claim. So it could mean that this could be inspired by a particular group as opposed to kind of centrally directed and coordinated by such a group. I mean, sometimes ISIS or al-Qaeda themselves need to have time to figure out which ideology this person was aligned with or, or if they were an adherent of theirs, etc. So it does, get, it does get quite dispersed in terms of the motivation and the connection to to a central kind of body, if you will, Scott. But there's no question in my mind that um, there, there's a very, very extensive manhunt on here. I'm, I can't imagine this person could get away. I, I, you know, I'd imagine in the, in the you know, coming days, there will probably be an apprehension. There'll be intelligence that'll come through to the authorities. And when they do capture the individual, they'll be able to figure out back where he got his indoctrination from, where this idea came from, is it an online, um, you know, um, kind of motivation that, that, or was this someone that has been across to Syria, possibly, or Iraq, and seen firsthand what's happening there, and that's motivated them, Scott. How can you be confident, David, that they're going to apprehend somebody when at this point there seems to be no evidence of who it was? Well, in this kind of situation, Scott, where you have this incident has happened, um, there's a lot of opportunities to track back and try to find evidence. I mean, th- you know, but this takes time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to be doing full fingerprinting and other types of evidence taking in and around the vehicle itself. It appears the vehicle may have been hijacked. Uh, possibly the driver was, was killed or, or might have been in, kind of stowed in the vehicle um, after the person, uh, this, uh, this killer here, um, hijacked the vehicle. But there might be CCTV footage of, 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 of areas. Maybe, maybe this driver picked this person up as, as, a, as a passenger in some way. There's, there's, a, there's a number of different scenarios where one could imagine that there may be camera evidence, there may be witness evidence, there may be uh, a cell phone that comes into play here that, that the police can track. 
So, you know, there may be accomplices or friends or, or, or someone that saw something or someone was talking about a, a possible, you know, you wait waiting to see the news tomorrow, you know, it's, something major is coming, I can't tell you about it, and then you see this. These kind of leads, Scott, tend to come out after this kind of incident, but it takes time. So, like I'm saying, we never know. We may never find the, the culprit, but I think it's, in, it's more likely than not that they will track down the perpetrator here. And I think there's going to be a lot of evidence that's going to come to bear. And when they do, I think that will afford them more knowledge into who this person was and what their ideology was. You talked about uh, the driver. Uh, do we know uh, for a fact yet whether the driver was the other person who was shot in the cab or was that an accomplice? Do we know? It's, it's not been confirmed yet. I, I, I'm pretty sure I read, Scott, that, that the identity of the individual in there was Polish. Like the, the individual yeah. was a vehicle from Poland, apparently registered in Poland for a Polish company. Uh, delivering into um, into uh, I believe Italy to Germany, um, and the, the, and there was a Polish citizen that had been shot that was in the you know, stowed in the passenger seat or kind of behind the passenger seat. So it kind of makes sense that it may have been the driver or somebody associated with that vehicle, but that's not been confirmed yet. Uh, again, we've talked about this before. Very similar situation to what happened in Nice. Uh, and as you mentioned, I, I'm sure Germany has, um, you know, quite an extensive uh, security apparatus put in place. But as you mentioned, also uh, the time of the year, there's lots of these festivals going on. How do they stay one step ahead of this? Well, this is the this is the difficulty you see, and and they're a little bit hobbled in the EU in Europe compared to North America here. We're a little bit further ahead, particularly in the U.S., with respect to kind of some of the more proactive steps that have been taken in terms of the legal abilities, the abilities to surveil uh, online, um, you know, the ability to uh, make even arrests and investigate quite, um, quite deeply, Scott, into suspicions as opposed to actually having to have a crime take place or having evidence in front of them. So in Europe, there's a lot of laws that haven't really come together yet. There's a lot of um, the borders, frankly, are quite porous. The external EU border to get into the EU from other continents is a little bit stricter. But once you're inside the EU, uh, which, as you know, is a, is a massive conglomeration of countries, mm -hmm. it's relatively easy to move around. The databases are very poor in terms of terrorist suspects, people that uh, are involved in terrorism. The information sharing is questionable. So these are all things that the EU is playing catch-up on, Scott. Unfortunately, the reality here is that the leadership, the senior leadership of ISIS, uh, have got French and Belgian connections. The, the senior most folks over there, or the ones that are really running the, 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 the kind of operational aspects of ISIS, have ties back to the French Moroccan individual and somebody who lived for many, many years in Belgium. So they have uh, an interest in targeting Europe as kind of the main focus of their activities beyond the battlefront. And as we know, within Syria, in Iraq, they've been losing ground. You know, they, they, they've been losing ground uh, under the American bombardment with mm -hmm. their allies. Canada's involved there. They've been losing ground as, you know, with, in terms of Aleppo with the Iranians, the Russians, and all of the focus there on the, the Assad regime retaking Aleppo. So when you look all the way across the swath, they are losing some ground, and they're striking out to show that they are still very strong, very relevant, and they can bring the terror to you. And that's what the EU is facing right now. Uh, and, of course, uh, a lot easier to do something like this with a, a vehicle or, or some sort of uh, low-tech crime as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to carry out some, some giant massacre of some sort. 
Well, that's right. I mean, the terrorists are, are evolutionary. They, 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 you know, they work hard at what they do, and they know which is the path of least resistance. And, you know, we saw the shooting of the Russian ambassador in Turkey. That's quite, that's quite unusual. That's a hard target. That is a security failure, in my view. And, and, and that you know, is a kind of separate discussion. It's still motivated, I'm sure, by similar things that motivated many of the other terror attacks around the world. But that one's a little bit different, in my view. But when we talk about the, the, you know, the, the, this uh, soft target attacks, like with a vehicle careening through crowds of people, this is the new playbook now where we don't have to buy acetate and ammonium and, and, and different mm-hmm. things that would go into a bomb. We don't have to amass large caches of weaponry and um, have elaborate plans that can come unraveled very quickly when a little bit of information is leaked or a cell phone is monitored or something. Now we have very simplistic attacks. They're very symbolic. They know when to strike, where to strike, and they can get the same kind of reaction, Scott, from this kind of act. But with I mean, the planning for this seems to be quite minimal. They, they hijacked a vehicle. They knew what the kind of target vector they wanted, which was a vehicle. They knew the area they wanted to go to, and they just put two and two together, and they, you know, sounds like in fairly short order, pulled this together and, and had a massive impact. So that is going to be the playbook moving forward, in my view, Scott, is attacks along these lines on soft targets in Europe. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates. Thanks for the time, David. It's always much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. Let's bring in Thomas Berger, Associate Professor, International Relations, Boston University, and an expert on politics in Germany, East Asia, foreign, and Japanese politics as well is with us now. Hello, Thomas. How are you today? Very good. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, obviously, it's been no secret. Germany has uh, has has o- o- done more than its share of of allowing people to come into its country. Uh, the far right is bla- blaming Merkel for this. What are your thoughts on that? How does how does Germany control this? Well, I mean, I think Germany is faced with the same kind of problem that the United States, Canada, and a whole bunch of other advanced liberal democracies are facing. I mean, it is a globalized economy. It is a uh, liberal democracy that is liberal in the sense that you know holds basic human rights uh, dear, and that makes these uh, kinds of societies vulnerable to these attacks. Up to this point in time, uh, Germany has been lucky not to have seen any sort of large-scale attacks of this sort. Um, uh, but uh, I just was uh, communicating with some of my friends in Berlin. Um, they're all well, but all of them are, of course, deeply in shock. And, but they all said that, and these are people who are, many of them, quite well educated and experts on foreign policy and security policy. They all knew that this was uh, going to happen, uh, and still uh, they are you know, quite shocked that it did happen. Why has Germany avoided this to this time, do you think? Well, some of it is luck. Some of it is also the character of the... Um, of the immigrant population. Um, uh, there's a large Muslim population in in Germany, as in many other European countries, uh, but the majority of them are coming from Turkey, and Turkey, the general population in Turkey, or you do not see in Turkey the level of radicalization that you see in the Arab world or in parts of South Asia. So uh, in that sense, uh, unlike France or Britain, where you have large um, Arab and uh, South African, uh, South Asian um, populations, people from Pakistan and uh, Baluchistan, um, you don't have as many uh, potential uh, targets of uh, recruitment for organizations like ISIS. And uh, so that, I think, has been a major factor. How will... Course, si- also- Sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, it's just also, I mean, of course, there are the German um, internal uh, police have been able to prevent a couple of attacks in the past, but I do think that that's uh, probably the central factor. How will Germany uh, react moving forward? How will they balance this? Well, I think that, uh, like other countries, uh, Germany is faced with a very uh, difficult balancing act. Um, uh, the crisis of this, of course, the lead, the terror issue is, of course, tied very closely to the issue of refugees. And the refugee issue is, in turn, uh, embedded in a sort of larger debate uh, and problematic of how to deal with immigration. Um, and uh, there is no simple solution to any of these problems. Um, and all of them are affected uh, by this attack. Um, with regard to the refugee issue, which I think is the one which sort of stands uh, immediately in the in the in the front field of our inquiry right now, is, uh, is the problem of how do you, on the one hand, uh, maintain security, prevent uh, these kinds of attacks from happening, um, and at the same time sort of live up to the moral obligations that all advanced industrial societies, uh, democracies face to try to deal with people who are uh, faced uh, or in desperate need. Um, I mean, I don't want to you know, become professorial, but uh, Germany, like the United States, is a signatory to the Geneva Convention on Asylum Seekers and Refugees. And uh, under that treaty, um, people who come to us who, are, uh, in, who have a legitimate fear of being persecuted, politically persecuted, and who fear for their lives, have the right to asylum. I mean, this was a principle which Germany played no sp small part in, in uh, <laughs> establishing. Uh, in the sense that uh, in the, before this treaty, was, uh, the Geneva Convention was signed in uh, the early 1950s, went into effect in the early 1950s, and it was a reaction to the just terrible plight of the masses of people fleeing Europe and fleeing in particular the Holocaust and, and Nazi persecution. And at that time, there were people, boatloads of people, for example, the St. Louis, which arrived in uh, New York in 1939, which was mm. packed with Jewish refugees and who we turned back and we sent them to their death. So this particular treaty, the Geneva Convention, basically has this principle of non-refoulement, which quite simply stated is you don't send people back. Uh, Germany is a signatory to that. I think Germany also feels a particular moral responsibility because of the dark past uh, that it has on these kinds of issues to try to uh, take a, a lead on, on these questions. So, you know, we've got to try to, to meet those kinds of responsibilities and at the same time uh, keep the population secure. And that's a very difficult task. Uh, obviously, the Christmas season, there has been chatter uh, that these targets uh, will be hit. Uh, how does that change things? How does that change the discussion moving forward, uh, especially this time of year when, of course, citizens will be feeling very vulnerable? Well, I mean, it is the purpose of terror is to create a feeling of terror. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing which, uh, and so then again, you know, the authorities have to um, uh, be very careful. On the one hand, if you overreact, uh, like a, sp a fly caught in the web, your struggles against <laughs> mm. uh, the danger of, of, uh, of attack increases the sense of fear and creates further incentives for such attacks to take place. So overreaction is a bad idea. But on the other hand, you do have to take precautions. And I'm sure that the German police and the German um, intelligence services will redouble their efforts. They will have increased resources to try to prevent these kinds of attacks from uh, occurring in the first place. But this kind of low-tech attack, uh, in many ways very similar to the attack which we saw in Nice uh, last summer when a, uh, on the mm -hmm. French um, sort of Independence Day celebrations, we ha saw a, truck, a French truck driver plow into um, uh, people celebrating uh, 
that day, uh, killed 80 people. Again, it's very difficult to prevent that kind of uh, attack. Thomas Berger has been with us, Associate Professor, International Relations, Boston University. Thomas, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure to talk to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.